Good morning. Good to see all the sea of green. Welcome to the pre-game service where we hope to give you enough faith for the riders to win today. And if it was my grandmother talking, bless her soul, she would say, Eldon, it's a sin to play on Sunday. And uh, I grew up believing that God didn't want you ever to have fun and he was so legalistic, and every time I did have fun, it was I felt guilty, and I'm so glad I met Grace. And uh, today is a great day. Glad you're here. Glad you're here on this long weekend. Thank you for coming and visiting with us. If you're from out of town, we say a special welcome to you. Inside your program, you'll find some sermon notes. Please take those at this time. You can also access them on your smartphone on Version Bible app. Click More. Click events, click circle drive, the notes will come up, you can add to them, you can save them, you can share them. Scroll down and you'll find the parent queue. This is an app that helps grandparents and parents, uncles and aunts have a discussion with your kids. And it furthers what the children are learning back in the kids zone today. So please make use of that app. It's a great way to keep the conversation going. Hope you follow us on uh, social media, like us and share us, that would be very helpful. Well, today we're continuing in the series on Impact YXE, and we're learning together about the value of sharing, the value of making an impact. And a lot of people wondered how does Christianity survive when it didn't have a lot of power to begin with. They didn't have political clout. They were marginalized. They had a strange theology. They had all the makings of some sort of movement that would fail. Yet today, there's more than a third of the world who believe in, in Jesus. How did that happen? And some very smart people have researched this over the years and discovered that it happened because the first Christians took generosity very seriously. And they shared with what little they had with other people. And they were generous. And those on the outside looked at the people on the inside and said, I want to be with them. And we began with the story of Pacomius, who was a Roman, or uh, lived in the town of Thebes that was conquered by the Romans. He was taken into Rome, placed in a prison, and held there until there was a war that he could be used in the battle. And a famine broke out in the land. Uh, what happened was Pacomius was kept alive by some people who put crumbs of food in between the bars of his prison and kept the prisoners alive. And he wondered, who are these strange people that were sharing their wealth with us and keeping us alive? When he was released from prison, he went to find out who were these strange people and discovered they were Christians. And the early believers were those who shared of their wealth. And it was their generosity that caught the attention of people. And Christianity has spread throughout the world. So today, I'm calling us back to the spirit of generosity. Because it is that spirit that is the most powerful thing 
when we think about spreading the name of Jesus Christ. In 1783, a man by the name of Edward Jenner had a really crazy idea. All over Europe at the time, smallpox lurked, and it was like a boogeyman. It was one of the biggest killers of the day, bringing death to nearly 80% of the children who caught this disease. When news of an outbreak was reported, families, families helplessly waited to find out if their children would come down with this deadly disease. And so mothers nervously secluded their children to protect them from exposure to smallpox. But Jenner, he had a different approach. He believed that it was possible to take steps to, to make a person immune to the disease, to go toward the problem instead of hiding from the problem. He heard English folklore at the time about milkmaids who couldn't catch smallpox if they had been sick with, with cowpox. Cowpox was a weaker version carried by cows. So Jenner's idea was to expose people to the fluid from an active cowpox boil on purpose. On purpose. And sure enough, all who followed Jenner's treatment seemed to be untouchable, no matter how severe the outbreak of smallpox was around them. In Jenner's medical papers, Jenner invented a new word called vaccine. It was based on the Latin word for cow, vacca. And so some of the nastiest diseases in the world are now under control thanks to the use of vaccines, including influenza. It all traces back to the work of Jenner. In Jenner's day, it was unnatural to expose yourself to the elements of the deadly disease on purpose. Imagine how the first patients would have felt. They were perfectly healthy. They probably thought avoidance was the answer. And instead, Jenner suggested they infect themselves with this disease. In Jenner's days, vaccinations didn't just make your arm sore for a few days. You got a full-blown disease. It was the, not the deadly version that caused by smallpox. It was cowpox. But it was nasty as well. And they didn't have Advil back in those days. Can you imagine the courage and the foresight to sign up for that? I want to suggest for affluent people today, there is a devastating disease, a threat, as smallpox in Jenner's time. It's called affluenza. It is rampant, too. It causes bouts of arrogance and chronic dislocated hope. The symptoms aren't always obvious either. They sneak up on you like an invisible growth that goes undetected and it eats in the inside of your heart. And this is not a new problem. 2,000 years ago in the New Testament, Paul addresses this problem with those whom were wealthy. He said, and we looked at this verse last, last week, in 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says, 
command those who are rich in this present day world not to be arrogant. How did they know? How did he know that this was the problem of wealth? Nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He was saying, why do you put your hope in the provision when you can place your hope in the provider? Don't take on the effects of affluenza. This series of messages, we see that there is a vaccine for affluenza and it results in much joy and a lot of health. The vaccine for affluenza is called contentment. Contentment. And as Paul addresses the issue of affluenza, he notes a few verses earlier that people who disregard the teachings of Jesus become rather nasty. And he writes about it. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 4, he said, They are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Apparently back there, there were people preaching that you could be wealthy because you come to Christ. Maybe it was the prosperity gospel in seed form. Give and it will be given unto you. And Paul is suggesting that there is an eternal perspective tempered by contentment that mitigates the effects of affluenza. I like what Abraham Maslow says. I put it in your notes. He said, what is necessary to change a person is to change his awareness of himself. What is necessary to change a person is to change his awareness of himself. Both Paul and Jesus were uncomfortably clear on this topic. Rich people should place their hope in God and not their wealth, he says. And he gives clear instruction later in the letter to combat affluenza. He said, you need to do good and you need to be generous. These are the vaccines that help you overcome. Last week, we noted that generosity is the antidote for dizzying effects of wealth. We said that rich people, in particular, live in denial. They're just in denial that they're rich. Nobody believes that they're rich. We said that if your income, your household income, is between 40, 44,000 and 45,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. So friends, most of us here are rich today. But we don't feel rich, and that's the problem. They deny, we deny that we are wealthy. And, and really, it's because we don't feel that way. And we'll get to that later. And secondly, we said they're plagued by discontentment. The wealthy develop an, ad, an appetite for stuff and, and status and security 
and they're never satisfied. They're always discontent. And we said that the wealthy feed their appetites. Appetites are never fully satisfied. Let me park here for a moment. They can be temporarily satisfied. Even after the most satisfying meal, you know what we do? We go to the pantry and we look for a snack. After we've just gorged ourselves with food, you buy a new car, and what happens? You're just kind of looking at all the other cars for your next acquisition. Appetites are not a bad thing. God created that in us, but they are terrible filters for making decisions. There are many studies centered on the role of appetites. Experts tell us that several changes take place in the brain when our appetites are stimulated. One of these changes is called impact bias. That's when our, an appetite is stimulated, the brain magnifies it out of proportion to other appetites. Experientially, we overestimate how happy we will be if we can satisfy that particular appetite. This is why when you go to a restaurant, smart waitresses bring the actual dessert to your table instead of just the menu because they know they know that something's happening inside of your brain when, when the appetite is engaged. And so you look at that dessert and you say, oh, triple chocolate caramel. Oh, I, I got to have it. And your husband says to you, but there's so many calories. And you say, well, you get the pumpkin pie and I'll have, just have a taste. Just a taste. And before you know it, your appetites take over and you're ordering a second and a third dessert. Listen, appetites are poor filters to make decisions. Once your appetite is engaged, your brain starts lying to you. Your mind also becomes so focused, so focused on that one thing or that bit of information that everything else is blurred and subdued in contrast. The brain actually exaggerates the consequences of not getting what your appetite desires. You've witnessed this with your teenagers. Mom, if I don't wear that dress, I'm going to be single forever. If I don't go to that party, I'm going to die. Yeah, the brain, the brain, your appetite affects the brain. While generosity is the antidote for the dizzying effects of wealth, your appetites may function as an antidote against God-honoring generosity. Your appetite for more stuff and status and security has the potential to squash your efforts of being generous. So in the same letter, the great apostle Paul says that generosity requires us to say no to ourselves, and he says, in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with great contentment is great gain. You really believe that this morning? 
as sometimes our brain lies to us and we, we can't even believe what the great apostle is saying. We don't think that godliness with contentment is great gain. But I want to talk to you about that this morning. Contentment is not a concept that we hear much about these days. Honestly, it's discontentment that fuels unnecessary and irresponsible and at times harmful spending. And Paul says, listen, godliness and contentment is great gain. Now looking back, how many of it have you have wasted money on something you've regretted? Anybody? Uh, the rest of you don't understand the question, right? I bet there was an appetite involved in that regret, wasn't there? There was an appetite. In verse 9, Paul says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires, there's that word again, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Amazing, amazingly clear. Desires, that's that appetite thing again. And then he writes the often misquoted verse in the Bible, in verse well, at 10, he says, for the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many grief. To summarize, Paul's observation is this. By refusing the gain that comes with contentment and opting instead for the gain fueled by discontentment, we run into risks. Check out the verses. We run in the risk of falling into temptations. How many have been tempted? Watching late night TV and there's that thing for $39.95. You just got to have it. Or four payments of $49.95. You can be hooked up to Dr. Ho's amazing. Amazing. He will... Cure all your aches and pains. $49.95 for four months. Free shipping. We fall into temptation. And we fall into the trap. And then we're being controlled by harmful habit-forming desires. These are habit-forming desires. Plunging headfirst into ruin. I wish I could tell you stories of people who have run with their, their desires and now they have to liquidate in order to survive. Friends, this is not good. And Paul warns us. And he said, beyond that, you can start wandering from your faith. You can start trusting in things and, and experiences and, and places and all kinds of things instead of the God who provides for you. And then we pierce ourselves with many griefs. How many people in a marriage have, have tension and fighting and arguing over spending? And it's just not worth it. And Paul gives this 
this warning, those who get rich fall into temptation and a trap and there are many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Is it possible, uh, probably not any of you because you're all perfect, but just think about other people for a moment. Is it possible that they're being lured into one of these undesirable destinations that they don't know of? That their brain has deceived them? Rich people often wrongly assume we are the smartest people in the room. When you are in a circle of people and the richest person starts talking, don't we all lean into what he's saying? We think, oh, she's smart. Look at all her wealth. She's the brightest person in the room. But Paul says we can be outsmarted by our own appetites. And it happens, doesn't it? It happens. We discover that we're not the first generation to succumb to our appetites. So Paul finishes with an appeal to another set of appetites that inhabits the soul of every rich man or woman. The appetite to succeed and to win. And he says in 1 Timothy 6, 11, But you, man of God, flee from all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. These are all characteristics that are necessary to overcome of all of our appetites. And then he says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you were made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Look at these words. Flee, pursue, fight. These are strong words to avoid being sucked into the discontentment vortex. He says, be proactive. Be intentional. Be aggressive. Generosity does not come natural. And saying no to our desires is not intuitive. But it's required. The more we have, listen, the more we have, the more we are in danger of being controlled by insatiable appetites for more. Which makes sense. It seems like the more we have, the less we want. Ah, but that's not the way of appetites, is it? The way of appetites is the more we get, the more we want. The more we have, the more we see and we desire. And to diminish this appetite, you have to starve it. You have to starve it. We have to check ourselves and we have to talk ourselves down. About four years ago now, my beloved 1986 Jeep Cherokee died. I was so sad. It had been with me for years. It owed me nothing. It went through snow and storms and ice and battles. It was a great thing. It was a tack, a, a tank. It was a thing of beauty. And then it died. And so I checked my bank account and determined I had a budget in order to buy a different car. And 
my only, uh, the budget, the only thing I could afford was a Ford. Can you imagine this? Something that my father loved and I hated. And it had, you know, it wasn't new at all. It was used, I don't know, five, six years old. And it had high kilometers on the thing. But I thought, well, I won't have payments, so I bought it. And to pacify myself from driving a Ford, I said to myself, in two years, I'm going to sell this thing and I'm going to buy a real car. <laughs> Something with low mileage. And so two years were up this summer. And I looked. I researched every nook and cranny, you know, those, what are they? Those, those, uh, those internet sites on AutoTrader and all kinds of sites. And I researched a vehicle. And I thought, okay, I want to find that vehicle with low mileage. And lo and behold, I found one at a dealer. So I went to the dealer. The salesman came up to me and said, it's a beautiful car. He said, it's a beautiful car. Low mileage. I said, how much do you want for this? He was 30% over my research. I said to him, do you not realize that you've overpriced this vehicle? And he said, oh, no, this is a good vehicle. I said, I'm sure it is. But my research says you're a 30% overpriced. He said, oh, no, it can't be comparison. So I went to my old Ford, and I got out my iPad, and I showed him. I showed him the comparisons. And he said, you know, those are good comparisons. He said, but... What do you want to do with your old Ford? And I said, well, I'd trade it in. Actually, I want to sell it on my own so I can get more dollars for it. He said, oh, you don't want to do that. You want to trade it in. Because here's the, here's the thing. If you trade it in, you only pay tax on the difference. Oh, so I can save money. Now he's talking my language. I'm going to save money by buying this new vehicle. So he said, why don't you take it for a test drive and we'll appraise your vehicle? I said, sure. So I drove this vehicle. You know what? It drove exactly like my old Ford. It's beautiful, smooth, quiet. It does the very same thing as my old Ford. So we came back and I went to his office and I said, so what's the difference? What, what do you want me to pay? They never talk in dollars and cents. They talk in payments. So you can have this for $350 a month for five years. What? I don't do it that way. Tell me, what are you giving me for it, Mike? They were going to give me 50% of what my car is, is worth. 50%. And then sell me another car, 30% overpriced. I said, I don't think so. I don't think that's a fair deal. He said, but look at all the money that you're saving by trading it in. You're not paying the tax on the, oh my goodness. 
I said, no, no, thank you. He said, make me an offer. And I said, I do not want to insult you with my offer. And I walked back to my car. And I got into my car. You know what I was thinking? I want is better than I owe. Because when I want, I can have a conversation with my Heavenly Father. But when I owe, the conversation is with my banker. And he is ruthless. He doesn't care who you are. He just wants you to pay and pay the interest. And I drove down the street and I had a new love affair for my old Ford. I said to my friend, I almost got conned. I was going to trade in my old Ford. He said, why would you do that? And I said, lower mileage. And he said, how many miles do you have on it? I told him, and he said, you realize those things can go another two times that amount? Is it giving you any trouble? And I said, surprisingly not. <laughs> then drive the thing. So I'm driving the thing. Friends, if I succumb to my desires and my brain engages, I could have thrown good money away for no reason. And it affects my life. Now, Paul gives us a bit of truth to live by. He says in verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. There is no hearse with a U-Haul behind it. We leave it all behind. Nothing comes from this life into the next. You bring nothing in, you take nothing out. You use it in between. Then he says, but, oh, here it goes. But if we have food and we have clothing, we will be content with that. Food and clothing? Where's the internet? Now just imagine how much money you could save and how generous you could be if you went a whole year, a whole year content to provide yourself with a minimal of food, shelter, and clothing. Just a whole year of that. Imagine what your bank account would look like. Now, I'm not suggesting it. I'd be a hypocrite if I did. But it's impossible to miss Paul's point. Paul was contented. He contented himself with the minimum. It was a gain for Paul, and it was a gain to those he gave to. He wrote to some churches and said, I am serving you because of the generosity of other people. I'm charging you nothing to be a servant of yours. He chose to live a simple life so he could give his life away. Awareness is a critical concept in sales and marketing. Without it, without it and the discontentment it inflames, Consumers don't buy much. They just don't. Apart from a daily dose of discontentment, we'd be perfectly happy with the stuff that we already own. Prior to, to today's sophisticated marketing machines, 
People bought on the basis of need. Can you imagine that? You only bought stuff because you needed it? And they would replace something because it, it was broken. Well, today, now companies plan obsolescence. They do. I remember when my, my parents' old freezer, it was like the Incredible Hulk. It just used up the whole basement. It lasted 40 years. 40 years. You would think that if we can put a man on the moon, we could make freezers that would last 75 years, don't you? But this is a marketing ploy. In order for us to, to keep buying and spending, I mean, we have the consumer price index. We're referred to as consumers. We're not people anymore. We keep the economy going. You know, after 9-11, the president comes on and says, you know, travel and spend and buy and prove to the countries around the world that we're American. We buy. We meet threats with spending. Isn't this kind of crazy? I mean, even the fashion industry. I, I, I was in it. I have nothing against it. It was a good time when I did that gig. But we change styles every, what, six months? You know, Apparently, my colors aren't that cool anymore, but hey, it works. But we have planned this in America, in North America. Planned obsolescence to get us to buy and buy and buy. So apart from a daily dose of discontentment, we'd be perfectly happy with the stuff we already own. So today we upgrade. This is the new word. We've got to upgrade our phone. We've got to upgrade this and that, the next thing. And everything around us is designed for you to become discontent. In the words of Paul, he would say, be aware. Have an eternal perspective. Have an eternal perspective. If you're going to be good at being rich and recovering from affluenza, you must begin by cultivating awareness of the things that really matter. That really matter. Opportunities that make a real difference in our community and in our world. Things that matter to our Heavenly Father. We must become aware of those things. It takes no effort at all to be aware of what we don't have, but what we could have. And again, I'm not against anything. I hope if you sell cars, you sell lots of them. You sell clothes. God bless you, sell lots of them. But we must make a habit to see beyond our neighborhoods and our schools and our current geographical frames of reference. If we don't, if we don't, eventually our awareness will be limited to our individual experiences. And while we remain rich, we may not be rich in good deeds. It is strange. 
I miss money that I've misspent. If I've made a poor investment and, a, and I lose money on the investment, I, lo- I mourn the loss of that investment. I mourn the loss of that money that was misspent. But I never miss money that has been given to others to help them in Jesus' name. I never miss that. Neither do you. And Paul says, if contentment brings great gain, that's why we focus our efforts in these days on awareness and impact YXE. Awareness is one reason why we volunteer in the community. Hearing about people in need heightens our awareness, and serving takes it to a new level. That's why our youth are collecting mitts and toques and scarves and socks for the youth drop-in center. That's why we Kids Caper Kids collected socks for those at WP Bates. And on December 7, City Center is having a Christmas dinner for those who are less fortunate than us. And we have the opportunity to serve that dinner. We'll also be giving them a donation to buy the turkeys to feed the people. And so you can be part of that just by on your connection card saying, I would like to serve December 7. Make sure your contact information is on that card. So volunteer in your community. There are hundreds of ways that you can do that. Secondly, disconnect from environments that fuel discontentment. Now, I hope you don't bring tomatoes and eggs today because what I'm going to say might make you mad, but I'm going to say it anyways. Stay out of the malls. Cancel subscriptions or electronic catalogs. Just unsubscribe. It's really easy to do. Skip the home show, boat show, RV show, spend here show. And this time of the year, I know it's difficult because we're coming into the Christmas season and it's all about the gift. It will take vigilance, vigilance to disconnect from environments that fuel discontentment. But that's why we make you aware of things that are, are matter in life. Like last Sunday, we talked about big brothers, big sisters. And thirdly, give generously. Affluenza, the desire for more, the discontentment fueled by our insatiable appetites has the power to dilute our generosity. Awareness, when leveraged correctly, has the power to tame and direct our discontentment. That's why we have a generosity fund. And when you give to the generosity fund, we fund our partners in not just locally, but around the globe to do great things. And last, develop a financial plan. Develop a financial plan. You know that everyone has a plan? Some plan not to plan. And you end up spending more than you hope saving less than you need, and giving less than you want. And many accumulate debt unintentionally. You do. You just do. 
That's what we do as Canadians. So you live with the consequence of debilitating payments. And you feel like you're in prison and you have no hope. Friends, I'm offering you a difference. We will have a financial course on Mondays beginning January 7th for 10 weeks. Two hours every Monday from January 7th to March 10th to work on your finances to get you out of debt, to increase your savings, to help you give. It will reduce stress and re increase your joy. You say, well, I don't have that time. Friends, you will save time worrying about your finances if you have a financial plan. If you want to be part of that financial course, indicate that on your connection card today. Friends, the key, listen, the key to overcoming affluenza and experiences joy is this word, generosity. Generosity. Generosity allows us to make an impact and to leave a legacy. And when I think of an impact, I think of people who work at the Lighthouse and people like Alan and Melanie Webster. Would you welcome Melanie as she comes to the platform this morning? Hello. Melanie has been part of the Lighthouse for how many years? Going on nine years. Nine years. Why did you get involved to begin with? Well, I was coming here. I started coming here, and I heard a message from Pastor Eldon saying that we should go and love others. And that's maybe even going to the unfortunate and just sitting with them and having coffee and listening to them. You don't have to do anything but love them. And so... I started looking around for a few places, and nothing seemed to fit. And a few months went by, and I was talking to God, saying, where is this place I'm supposed to go? And I saw this bus go by, a city bus, and it said, volunteer at the lighthouse, apply online. I was right by the computer. So God talks through a bus. Through the bus. <laughs> I'm like, the lighthouse, the homeless shelter, I never heard of it. So I went online, checked it out, and... Next thing I know, my husband, Alan, and I are going to the volunteer coordinator and discussing what we're looking for. She didn't have what we were looking for, so she said, but you can do whatever you like. Pick a night. They didn't have anyone doing anything there yet. So we picked the night we were looking for, and we started doing crafts, games, snacks, uh, bringing clothes for them, having Bibles, they kept asking us questions on the Bible, but it was so busy, we didn't have time to spend with them, to talk to them about it, because people wanted prayer, and we were just not enough of us. No. We said, there's a hunger here for a Bible study. And we're like, isn't there a Bible study for you guys here? And they said, no, there's nothing. So we said, well, we let's see if we one. can get another. Yeah. yeah, we asked, is there another night we can come just for Bible study? We didn't think there'd be any nights available. She says, pick a night. There's no one here. Ah. So we started going twice a Two week. Two times a week. Yeah. What impact years. has that had on you and Alan? And what impact has it had on some of the people that frequent the lighthouse? Well, for us, as the volunteers, we had to step out of our comfort zone. God helped us. He gave us courage. We had no training. We had no idea of what we were going to do and what was going to happen there. So I remember even 
um, for leading the Bible study. I'm like, oh my goodness, God, isn't there someone you can bring? And there wasn't anyone, so I stepped out of my comfort zone, and same with other volunteers for praying and stuff, and then the reward is the relationships we built, this love and joy that we have. It's an unconditional love that's just amazing. And then the people that come, they're people that come out of prison looking for a new path, not knowing where to go. There could be people that are um, mentally health issues or they're from residential schools and never knew about Jesus loving them. They were misrepresented who Jesus was to them. So now they know who he is and that they love him. And then also just people that are hurt from other religions or other churches. Mm-hmm. And now they get that love and care from Jesus for, through us with our programs that we have there. It's amazing, Melanie. I, I admire your ability just to go, not have training, but to go and to see you grow is rewarding for me to see that happen. Thanks. My favorite story is about the lady who didn't like Jesus or the Bible yeah. and came to Alpha. Yeah. Just tell us briefly about what happened. Well, she, she wouldn't touch the Bible or talk about it. And so over time, she started coming a little bit more and more. We had um, Alpha there, watch some videos and stuff. And then uh, she was gone for a bit, and now she's back, and she's helping us with our Bible study. Mm-hmm. She's given her life to Jesus, and she's a whole different person. There is many people like that. They're just a total different person. The transformations are ama- amazing. Melanie. Thank you for being generous. Without your generosity, people wouldn't know of the love of Christ. So good on you. you. Let's say thank you to Melanie. So I believe this morning that in this group of people, we want to leave a legacy and we want to make an impact. And it takes vigilance takes us saying no to our desires and saying, yes, God, I'll follow you. And our appetites never fully satisfy. But God promises that he will satisfy your deepest need and he will be your provider and he will be your reward. Would you respond today and would you say, I will drive a stake and I will leave my impact? Would you listen to this next song? Before the psalm, we're going to prepare ourselves for the morning offering. And I'm going to ask that the volunteers come forward at this time. I want to say thank you to you for giving to the ministry here. Without your giving, we could not do the things that we do. We couldn't impact our city. Thank you for giving to generosity and to our general fund. You know, the needs, if you part of the church, you received an email from me, and you see the notice in the bulletin, so would you prayerfully give this morning? Let's pray. God, we give to you because we love you, and we want your name to be known in this community, and we want to be known as a church who's generous, who loves people, not just in word, but in action and with our resources. So bless the giver and the gift today in Jesus' name. Amen.